You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. There was this other thing going on, which is I told Bob Woodward something that I had learned in the Clinton White House, and he promised he wouldn't use it, and he started reporting on it while I was out of town. So when I came back into town and oh, found right, out yeah. I wasn't going to be acknowledged, and I don't know for certain how much that affected this, but I don't want to come off 20 years later. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, poor me, they didn't no, acknowledge no, no. me. It's a much more complicated right. tale, and I think the value in it is one, it's just kind of a good yarn. Barbara Feynman Todd has spent a lifetime helping other people tell their stories. In 1982, fresh out of college, she took a job as a copy aide at the Washington Post and was instantly hooked on the smell, cigarettes, newsprint, the noise, yelling editors, the frantic chatter of keyboards, and the energy. After a year, she scored a coveted gig as Bob Woodward's research assistant at the Post's investigative unit, then left the paper to work as Woodward's personal research assistant on Vail, his acclaimed book about the CIA. A good word from Woodward then landed her with Carl Bernstein, who had been struggling to write his memoir, Loyalties. Todd kept moving upward, finally working with the paper's legendary editor, Ben Bradley, on his autobiography, A Good Life. Next up had her spending the night at the White House working with Hillary Clinton on It Takes a Village. Barbara Feynman Todd is the founding journalism director in Georgetown University's English department. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Daily Beast, Newsweek, Huffington Post, Glamour, and elsewhere. She lives in Washington, D.C. We're here today to talk to you about your new book, Pretend I'm Not Here, How I Worked with Three Newspaper Icons, One Powerful First Lady, and Still Managed to Dig Myself Out of the Washington Swamp. We're associating swamp with Washington ever so much more these days. Yeah. How do you feel about this uh, drain the swamp phrase? Yeah, well, I, 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 I feel like the phrase was hijacked. I mean, it's not mine. It's been around Washington for, I mean, I came to Washington in the 80s, and it was, it was already a cliche. So it's been around for a long time, and... Uh, when we decided to use it in the subtitle, this was before... Yeah, before any of it happened. Before Trump and his people uh, took it over. So I, I was a little bit bummed about that, but I guess, you know, any it it's good because it's out there, but I just don't want people to associate me in any way with, with that Trump. sort of that whole sort of movement and that yeah, whole sentiment with that movement yeah i mean i i think where what they're talking about is some of the same stuff which is washington is a swamp m- metaphorically not not literally only 1 to 2% yes i looked this up only 1 to 2% of the topography is below sea of level. washington is is swampland but it it's 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 too good to check, as Ben Bradley used to say. That was one of his favorite phrases. So what does it wait? What does that mean? It's too good to check. It's too good to check. So we call Washington a swamp, but it isn't really a swamp. So we won't we won't talk about the fact that it's not really swampland um, because it just sounds so good and it's because so it, it, because appropriate. Because it's so appropriate. It's so accurate in so many ways. It's you know it's it's muddy. It's murky. You don't know um, what lies beneath. Uh, you don't know who's down there. What, if somebody's gonna, as you're walking by, you know, grab hold of your ankle and take a bite out of it. It's it's just a really 
tough, messy place. You know, people talk about New York as being a tough town. Uh-uh, no really? way. Yeah. It's Washington. It's mean, it's nasty, and it's inauthentic. And this reminds me of one of your early, what was it? It was a column where you talked about your desire to leave town. What I was talking about is that people mark time in Washington around events, uh, around politics. So before the inauguration, after the election, uh, during the indictment, after the deposition, that kind of stuff. And so in this piece that I wrote in, I can't remember when, the early 90s, one of the... Maybe it was one the, of the first things well, that you... Was it one of your first... It was one of my first essays in the yeah. Washington Post. Yeah. yeah, I talked about I wanted to live somewhere real when they talked about, you know, after the harvest or before the big <laughs> storm. The I harvest. wanted to be somewhere where there was, you know, that you had some kind of a connection with something other than this awful muck. And you're, But you're still there. I am still there. But you're doing great things. So you're currently, you're teaching journalism, but within the English department of Georgetown. Is that right? How does I, so I'm a, I'm, a prof, I'm a journalism professor, and it, it started out, journalism courses started out in the English department, and I have since um, turned it into its own program, and so oh. it's its own separate entity now. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And I remember you were talking about sort of the what led you to determine that you you didn't think you wanted to be a full time journalist and it was an assignment that you had to go um, into a hospital and basically <laughs> yeah. go into who's that was Bill Casey Bill so Casey worked for Woodward uh, deathbed, and yeah. um, he was writing the book about William Casey the CIA director during the Reagan administration and. Um, he had a brain tumor and he had a stroke and he was in the hospital basically on his deathbed and Woodward wanted to go interview him and sent me there. Uh, how old were you? How old was I? I was 26. I was about 26. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, go find him. He said, go find him. And it, it, it wasn't that I was necessarily supposed to sneak in the room. My memory is that he just wanted me to find where Casey was at the hospital and come back and report to him so that then maybe he could go. I was like an advanced man. Yeah. And in the process of sort of going to the hospital and walking down the hall, in the book, you quote um, Janet Malcolm's famous first line mm-hmm. from The Journalist and the Murderer, which is, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. indefensible. And so do you talk about that with your students? And, and do you, gr- the do you first agree day. with Do you agree with that? Yeah, so that I would think yeah. so. So how do you set it up and, and what follows from there? I'm just curious. I say this is a noble profession, and there are ways to give voice to the voiceless and to tell stories that otherwise, if you didn't exist, if you, the young journalist going out, didn't find these stories, they won't get told. But there is also a danger, which is that you can fall in love with your own byline and you can fall in love with you know, the next big get. And that when that happens, you can do things that even if your newsroom is comfortable with it, Maybe you're not comfortable with it, and, and it, you're going to have trouble sleeping. And then I read them the Janet Malcolm quote, and I I, I talk about the the history behind it, what you know, the context yeah, behind yeah. it. Yeah. 
All right. So, so we've gotten a little bit away, but it's a, what you've written is a fantastic book. It is so interesting in that you give us a behind the scenes look at a profession, which many of us know nothing about. And that profession is one of a ghostwriter, but it's also your story of finding your, your own voice, which I thought I very much related to of a, as a woman of the same generation as you are. So let's start first with the ghostwriting stuff. So, Tell, just tell us, what is a ghostwriter, and how does one find themselves working as a ghostwriter? So a ghostwriter is somebody who is hired to write a book on behalf of someone else who either doesn't have the time or the skill. They might have the writing skill, but they've never written something book-length before. They don't know how to structure it, um, or they need help with the voice And so somebody like me is hired to help them write the book. And you can end up writing the whole book. You can end up writing just a small piece of it. And you've got other roles that you play. So it's it's sort of a catch-all phrase. Yeah, so I would imagine project by project, your involvement is entirely different. Exactly. And when you worked with um, Hillary Clinton, you say that really you were asked in a very broad stroke to produce a book that reflected, you know, her track record and her dedication to children's issues and it was like go yes and you had x amount of months yeah they didn't have a title they didn't have a structure they didn't have a thesis what they had was a deadline a deadline thank you (laughs) they had a deadline and they had a, a vision the vision was that it would help mrs clinton uh, refurbish her brand, basically, because she was coming off of the healthcare debacle, and there was all the whitewater stuff, and the Republicans were going after her, and she was really caught up in the muck of the swamp. And you knew that. You knew, okay, that's what this—that's what we're going to do together. Yeah. And you, and you agreed to do it. You, you receive a contract directly from the publisher. So that's your arrangement. You're being paid by Simon & Schuster, her publisher, and you agree, and you sit down, and, and you the two of you sort of figure out how you're going to do this, correct? You've got it all right. You left out one little thing, which is that I felt really nervous about it. Did you? Because everybody in that White House was getting a subpoena, or they were oh. getting in some kind of trouble, and I just wanted to have my little writing life, and things were going quite well for me, and I was really nervous about it. But I was tempted by it. And yeah, I, right? It's almost like at for your profession, how could you possibly yeah, turn it down? It, it's exactly. one of the best gigs. If the Pope walked in today and exactly. said he wanted to give you, you know, he wants to write a book for you. Yeah, how could you turn it yeah. down? Although the Pope would be easier. Okay. So we're not going to give too much away. There's There's a lot of good stuff in here. But let's sort of cut to the end. Which is that you then, you, you do this work, you you are successful in the effort, and then strangely at the end, you find yourself sort of pulled into a controversy that is created when Mrs. Clinton does not uh, list you, or she, she ends up not listing anyone in the acknowledgements page. Which tell us a little bit, because we need to sort of know the importance of acknowledgements and how that is currency in your profession and what that really means in your profession. Yeah, so it was in my contract that I would be acknowledged on the acknowledgements page. And the reason why that is important to a ghostwriter is because it helps a ghostwriter 
get his or her next gig. Because if you're mentioned in the acknowledgement page of a famous person's book, that gets noticed. People might, they're not going to write a whole story about it, but they're going to mention it in a story about the book. Um, it's something that you can point to when you're looking for more work. It just helps with the word of mouth with getting you your next gig. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So she surprisingly does this. You don't even realize this until you receive a call from a reporter asking for your reaction to the fact that she did not acknowledge you. And as Maureen Dowd ends up writing about in the Times... She, she mentions no one, and she's, she basically says there's too many people to list, and Maureen says something like, and that's nine words more than if, you know, it would have taken to just a- acknowledge Barbara. Yeah. Um, so you really try to stay out of this, and for a long time, you avoid comparing your latest draft with the finished book. Yeah. And, and you talk about how it sort of led to this real crisis of faith, correct? This feeling yes, of yes. an imposter. Because earlier in the book, you talk about how part of what you – you sort of had a love-hate with being a ghostwriter is how you like to inhabit yes. your subject's skin. You, yes. you literally talk about it, you know, how you sort of live and breathe and you sort of pick up their pulse and, and, and how that was good and bad for you. But now you've, you've, you've willingly done this and then to be cleaved from it so strangely, it led you to think and, and to be given no indication as to why, right? Was that, was that the hardest part that nobody ever really said to you, this is it, why? Th- they just implied my work wasn't good enough, which I believed w- without challenging them. And I didn't look at the finished book to see. But there's this other complicated thing, which we don't have time to go into, but I think it's important to note just so I don't leave you with the wrong okay. impression. I, there was this other thing going on, which is I told Bob Woodward something that I had learned in the Clinton White House, and he promised he wouldn't use it, and he started reporting on it while I was out of town. So when I came back into town and oh, found right. out yeah, I yeah. wasn't going to be acknowledged, and I don't know for certain how much that affected this, but I don't want to come off 20 years later, no, no, no. oh, yeah, poor me, don't. they didn't no, acknowledge no, no. me. It's a much more complicated right. tale, and I think the value in it is, one, it's just kind of a good yarn. There's a mystery. Yeah. Um, there's a mystery, that, and, and then there's you know the, the classic not facing your own stuff, and then having an epiphany like I really had an epiphany you really did I really did one of the things a whole crying scene I mean yeah I throw it all in there it could be an opera it could be an opera because Someone one of the things that of you did in one of your books when you weren't get, when you were getting a lot of canned responses from the subject's inner circle you said oh if this was a movie yes. what would have been the turning right. scene that's when you sort of hit bottom as, as a ghostwriter exactly. right and yes. then that's when it led to this reflection of you know is this really you know, what I want to be doing. Is this what I should be doing with my life? Should this be my life's work? Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is cheaper than therapy. Well, it's just, the book plays out on two different levels, which is this really very, very interesting, and like you said, fast-paced, and I mean, there's broken plates, and there's this, you know, there's yeah. just all kinds of... The break-in of my apartment, right. <laughs> Little really, teaser, spoiler There's alert. really interesting stuff going on in just of how you both managed your career and sort of just worked very hard and one thing led to the other to the other which is a lot of what uh, at my age I say to younger people yeah. just do what you are doing with right. all of your might yes. as hard as you can and have patience and you will look back at your movie right. which is very much you can. this is what your yeah. book very much demonstrates 
and you and a lot of other women, because you talk a lot about the women that you came up with, yes. you know, having started at, at the Washington Post. But at the same time, it's also how you then said, you know what, at a certain point, you do kind of have to take the reins yeah. and steer it a little bit more. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing with this book. So tell, yeah. So tell us about that. So now you've written your own book, yeah. and you've you're about to birth your own book. Yeah. How do you feel? Um, a lot of 24 hour morning sickness. <laughs> I feel really sick to my stomach. So what what what, what I feel will the very, analogy be of like yeah. pushing for three hours to get the baby out? Yeah, What's that going to oh. be like? Your first big, you know, you know, national interview or something? I mean, like what what is the moment when the when the book is really born? You know. It's when, it, you know, right now nobody's read it except for... Because the book is embargoed, Because we the say. book is embargoed. Right. Um, only people involved with the book have read it. When a total stranger comes up to me, preferably a young woman, and says, I enjoyed your book and it really helped me. I was, you know, I was on, I was on the cusp of taking, accepting a job offer and I knew in my heart I shouldn't and I, I just didn't know what to do and I didn't have the guts and then I read your book and then I knew and then I knew that that would do it for me it really I know that sounds kind of cheesy no I think like that it's makes not sense. about it I mean I would love to sell a lot of books don't get me wrong I'm not crazy um but I, I would just I would like people to say it's a good story you know they weren't bored it's a good it's, story it's a good I can story that. and that you know if it could help some young women I think that would be awesome that would do it for me I think that that's going to happen. And how do you feel? Oh, I want to talk about the cover. The cover. Because I oh want to talk God. about the cover because I also have another really good quote. That here's it because of course I know this is why you chose it, but I wouldn't have known this until I did a little bit of research. So there's this whole issue of ghostwriters and when they're acknowledged and when there's not. And it, this goes wait, you're not the first to to be a, a part of this overall story. And it goes back to um, Profiles in Courage, right? Which was in 1957, uh, John F. Kennedy won the Pulitzer Prize for Profiles in Courage. But there was always some question about authorship. And then in 2008, Ted Sorensen, his longtime aide and speechwriter, set the record straight in his autobiography when he wrote, quote, that he did a first draft of most chapters of profiles and, quote, this is my favorite part, helped choose the words of many of its sentences. <laughs> oh, my God. That is beautiful. How subtle is that? Yes, yeah, I did help choose the word of many of those sentences. So when you all see the cover of Barbara's book, Pretend I'm Not Here, which we're very happy that she's not pretending right now, and you see profile, I mean, that couldn't have been, that couldn't have been accidental. So what did you, whose idea was that? Was that was that Harper's idea? It was Harper's idea. Oh my god, that's fantastic! You mean the yeah the yeah. The, the similarities and the type the the yeah. the mimicking of the of the typeface and the font is it's really quite yeah. it's really quite lovely. Yeah, that's all. They so they so they came to you with that. What was your reaction? Did you just fall over with the cover? Yes, I just fell in love with it. Oh my god, that's so fun! And you know, I'd heard from non-ghostwriter friends who've written books and oh when the when the first cover comes that they send you you're gonna hate it I always hate mine that's what my friends say and you're gonna have to argue and and I saw it and I was like I love this I was, what's I wrong would, with I me I would have cried yeah. if I were you no, I think it's so, it's so perfect great. yeah no it really spoke to me are there other things in publishing under your own name that have surprised I mean you've been through this process but in a very distinct and specific way and now that you're going through it as your own self are there other things that have surprised and delighted you or, or are there other things that have surprised you in a kind of like I can't believe this is how this goes kind of way 
no, just how easy it's been. Oh no, seriously. And <laughs> it, it, finally, you know, after working on all these other books that feel like various forms of masochism, um, you know, it's my it's my book. I get to it's mine. It's great, and I've had such a great time so far. All right, I have one last question. It's going to be it's kind of an odd one. Tell us what led to the moment where you sat drinking champagne to your being quoted as the next Jewish Amy Tan. Oh, my God. Okay, so what you're referring to is actually what led me to become a ghostwriter. So I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a novel. A Washington Post friend of mine shared the first 100 pages of this manuscript I had written called Poor Girls Always Have Singles. And the agent called me up. And I was 27, 28, I can't remember. I was in my late 20s. And he said, I want to represent you. I really like this book. You're going to be the, you're going to be the Jewish Amy Tan. What better words have yeah. spoken? <laughs> Oh and my then, God. then your friends were like, yeah, and yeah. they went out, bought the champagne, we, sat Yeah, down. a friend brought champagne over. We got drunk. It was great. I was going to be the Jewish Amy Tan. For those youngins who don't know who Amy Tan is, best-selling novelist, amazing. And, um, and, then, and then that didn't work out. So I, I, didn't, I didn't sell that novel. But then I got a different agent, and she couldn't sell it. And then she said, but... I can turn you into a ghostwriter. And I said, okay, I'm game. What's that? It's Exactly. See, that's exactly what we yeah. talked about earlier. Just do everything as hard as you can, yeah. and then something will work out. Yeah. And I'm so happy that it led you here and to this book. It's so good, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. And thank you for Pretend I'm Not Here, how I worked with three newspaper icons, one powerful first lady, and still managed to dig myself out of the Washington Swamp. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.